Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find information about Religion for Life at religionforlife.com. I have a before and after for you on this program. This is Alex McNeil before testosterone. Hey guys, this is Alex. This is my puppy Nemo. I just wanted to make my first video um, after having started T2 uh, days ago um, on Thursday. It's now Saturday. Um, don't have a ton to report. Just wanted to establish a baseline. This is what I look like. This is what my puppy looks like. And this is what my voice sounds like. Um, I feel like it's changed a little bit, but who knows? not trying to obsess about what's changed and what hasn't. So we'll see how we do. Um, but thanks for watching, and we'll see you later on the journey. And this is Alex McNeil after. Hey, what's up? It's Alex. Um, I know it's been a long time since I made a video. Um, last time I was just about at two months on tea, and now I'm almost at three months on tea. Alex McNeil is offering a gift to us. Alex is being very public about his journey from female to male, as well as his ordination journey to become a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. It's a process of education so that we might understand the great variety of what it means to be human. Alex uh, is a blogger, among many other things. He blogs at Presbyquerian just another feminist transgender ordination journey. Presbyquerian is a project of Alex, uh, whose driving passion is working for queer and transgender inclusion in sacred spaces and fundraising for progressive social causes. He's the first openly transgender ministry candidate in his conservative Presbyterian region in Western North Carolina. Alex earned his Master of Divinity degree from Harvard Divinity School with scholarship on the intersection of religion, gender, sexuality, and reproductive rights. He's been writing, organizing, training, and preaching for LGBT equality for the past nine years. For four years, he served as the development director at a reproductive justice organization where he honed his skills in foundation and individual fundraising. And he is going to continue to speak, organize, and fundraise for queer religious issues until all faithful LGBT individuals can call church a home. His blog is a place where feminism, gender theory, and irreverent spirituality come into play. Alex, welcome to Religion for Life. Thank you, John. I'm glad to be here. Well, first of all, congratulations on your marriage. I, I read in your blog that you were married in May of this year. How was that? It was wonderful. Uh, my partner and I have been together for five and a half years and uh, planned a big wedding, actually small wedding party in the Outer Banks of North Carolina, um, where I grew up uh, going to the beach and uh, the North Carolina coast, and so it felt really great to come home and have a wedding where we had 40 of our closest friends uh, join us for a week at the beach um, playing, and then uh, one of my best friends from seminary and one of my partner's good friends from college actually got to marry us, so it was really a powerful experience there. And, and what is your partner's name? Her name is Nicole. Nicole. All right. Well, congratulations uh, to you and Nicole. Uh, one of the things to talk about some of the uh, issues surrounding transgender, and so I have some very uh, um, uh, invasive questions. For example, how old are you, and uh, <laughs> and where are you, and where are you from? 
It's too, it's too deep. That's too deep. <laughs> uh, I am going to be 30 in November, uh, and I grew up in North Carolina, specifically Western North Carolina. So in the mountains um, is where I call home in Asheville. But now you work in Washington, D.C., is that right? Yes, I moved to Washington, D.C. right after I finished my Master's of Divinity uh, from Harvard. So I was in Boston for three years um, in the extreme north and then decided to kind of uh, make a compromise and move uh, to the mid-Atlantic so I could drive home when I needed to and experience that humidity I miss so much um, and, you know, kind of wait out the church, actually, around their policies, around ordaining LGBT people um, and took a job at a nonprofit uh, doing development, uh, telling stories really actually um, about the organization and the work they're doing and helping people uh, use their money to make a difference. Uh, what, what is your job then? What is that organization? Uh, I actually just left a job at the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. It's a pro-choice interfaith organization. Um, I was there for four years and then really decided that it was time to invest more in uh, my ordination journey. So it was time to kind of close that chapter and start a new one. So you've been out of seminary for four years, waiting for the the church, that is the Presbyterian Church, uh, to uh, change its policies? Yes, the Presbyterian Church USA has had a um, had a law on the books that actually said that no openly uh, gay or lesbian persons could um, be ordained. Going to seminary, kind of knowing that that law was in place, and people at the time actually said to me, "You know, I don't know if this law is going to be changed in my lifetime. I hope it's going to be changed in yours." And so I kind of went to seminary with that feeling, knowing that that this might be for naught. You know, it was, I was, it, was a, it was a hard time, actually, because I wasn't sure whether I was ever going to be ordained or whether it was still right for me. And, you know, there was a lot of questioning during that time. But in 2010, um, at the, again, at our General Assembly, there was another law that was, that was voted, um, Amendment 10A, which took out the kind of uh, piece that was really actively discriminating against um, lesbian and gay individuals seeking ministry, and in May of 2011, it was it was passed. It, it's not a non-discrimination clause, but it is a, a paragraph that really allows presbyteries to examine candidates for their fitness for ministry, not really based on their sexuality, but really on the gifts that they have for the ministry. So that has been a, a two or three, four year process with while. I've been finished with seminary and then kind of following that around my um, gender journey, um, it kind of all came together this summer to really mean that I can invest more heavily in my, in my ordination journey. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and my guest is Alex McNeil, uh, talking about his journey for ordination uh, in the Presbyterian Church. And and I'm speaking uh, with Alex via Skype from uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, you're... Um, your your journey was also because you had come out as a lesbian. Is that right? It isn't because you were transitioning from male to female. That's correct. Or female when to I, male, excuse me. Yeah, right. That's correct. Uh, when I first came to my ordination committee back in 2005, um, I did so authentically at the time as an out lesbian. And then over the course of the past uh, six years, um, seven years now, the kind of how I identify and how I feel my body has changed. I'm actually going to be coming to my ordination committee as an out transgender man. 
Do you think they will be receptive to you? I sent them a letter that really talked about how I came to this kind of realization. I call it a, I call it a calling to a new gender, you know, self, uh-huh. um, and and really tr- expressed it in in kind of this this deep sense of feeling transformed spiritually, and. I got some feedback yesterday from my liaison to the committee saying that people are really appreciative of the letter. You know, some of these folks maybe have never met a transgender person before. Um, but I think that just kind of seeing me as myself and more myself than I've ever been, I think will be an uh, overall positive experience for the people that have really cared for me on this committee. Well, Alex McNeil, uh Tell me, if, if you don't mind, I appreciate, uh, I, I would imagine that folks who are listening to this program uh, may not know what transgender means and all of its implications, and not that you're a spokesperson for all people, but maybe, uh, could, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about your, your journey. You mentioned that it was a, a spiritual change as you came to discover who you were. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be Alex McNeil? <laughs> sure. Um, so I wasn't born Alex McNeil. Um I was born female uh, almost 30 years ago, and you know, it really the you know for for many years I felt fine in my body. It was never it was never like completely comfortable as female, but you know I I, I described it in my letter to my committee as female to me was like an, a clothes that just didn't fit right. You know, I tried for a lot of years to kind of adjust the fabric and and kind of like you know it was kind of scratchy almost. I could sense that God was calling me to something else, not a new career, but to, to this new gender expression that somehow like the, the scratchy female fabric was just not working anymore and it was time to put on some new clothes, so to speak. And so that feeling, I tried to run away from it. I tried to run away from God a little bit in the past four years and, you know, it, it doesn't get you anywhere, that running away <laughs> for me. Um, And finally, I decided to try a leap of faith. And so with a lot of prayers and a lot of conversations with my partner and my therapist, um, I decided to medically transition. So I changed my name about five years ago because my birth name didn't feel great. Um, And then that felt good. And then about two years ago, I said that I might try changing my pronouns. So everything else about me stayed the same. But maybe we could try a new pronoun, male pronouns. And that felt great. And then, so the next piece was to really try medically transitioning, which for uh, female to male transgender people means um, testosterone injections. So it's like a weekly um, or biweekly injection under the care of a doctor. And after you've gotten a letter from a therapist kind of saying that this is something that's really authentic for you, so you're under care with a with a professional for a couple of months or years or however long it takes to kind of get there. Um, and, and so then you do weekly injections and then slowly over time, it takes the full transition kind of passing, which means like when people start to see you as male, um, takes about a year and then you kind of maintain it throughout your lifetime. So I'm almost five months in over those five months, my voice has gotten deeper. My face shape has changed ever so subtly. My shoulders have gotten a bit broader. Um, your body fat redis- redistributes. Um, it doesn't make you miraculously, magically thinner, but it does kind of change your body shape from mm-hmm. a bit curvier to kind of more um, boxy, like in, in, in kind of like males. Um, and then 
you know, all of the, it's, it's sort of changing your body on a cellular level. I mean, uh, it's, it's a really interesting process to kind of notice. Um, I think that some folks think that it happens kind of overnight, but really it's, it's a slow kind of layering of the testosterone and your body's changes that kind of start to add up around making you look a little bit different and sounding different than you did before. And my guest is uh, Alex McNeil, uh, talking about transitioning from female to male. Uh, Alex, tell me, um, do, do you feel male? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that's an interesting question around kind of feeling one gender or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I came out to my parents, I said, you know, I'm pretty much the same person I've been for the past 30 years, you know, with all of my quirks and all of my silliness. Um, But I want to be seen through a lens of masculinity. I want to be read through this kind of overlay. Um, So to them, what I said was like, the only thing that really changes about me are my pronouns. You know, I'm still the same Alex that you've loved for these number of years. Um, and I think that, you know, that was before I started, uh, testosterone. And I think that I didn't expect or anticipate that it would feel so good to be in my body. And so I think that to me that feels male in that this process of taking testosterone is what makes me feel right again. You know, I haven't felt this good as myself in a really long time and I didn't even realize how, how bad it had gotten almost, you know, kind of just, I think that for me, and I would say for many transgender folks that what feels different or male or female or whatever they're trying to achieve is that good feeling that you've missed for so long. So you feel that you've really become yourself. Absolutely. This is who I was meant to be. So how is your family responding? I am very blessed with good, uh, with parents who never put any kind of expectations on me to be one thing or another and who were supportive of kind of who I became. Um, They followed me along this, you know, ordination journey, kind of, my mom works at a Presbyterian church, you know, my I come from a very long line of Presbyterian folks. I'm called, I call myself a cradle Presbyterian. And I'm lucky in that um, many of those people have used their faith to work for causes such um, as civil rights and, mm-hmm. and really welcoming people into God's community. And so having come from that family, my parents didn't have to take much of a leap to really accept me. Um, they, of course, had questions when I first came out as a lesbian and then when I came out as transgender, um, but none of those questions implied that they didn't support me. That is great news. And uh, and that doesn't happen with everyone, does it, by any means? No. Um, I, I My experience is pretty atypical, unfortunately. I think that many people who come out... Um, there's there's either kind of just a, a lack of understanding around what it might mean or somewhere along the way have folks have picked up an idea that 
any part of their identity, uh, you know, their son or daughter's identity is sinful. Um, and so a lot of rejection happens. Um, for example, uh, numbers were just released that in New York City, of all the homeless youth, 40% of them are LGBT. Um, wow. And that's, that's staggering because, you know, you think about New York City and you're like, oh, of course, liberal rights in North. Um, no, I think that I think that it's indicative of how frequently these young people are rejected by their very own families for expressing who they are. Um, and we can debate theology, but I really think that at the end of the day, you know, kicking out your own child is is sinful. Absolutely. Alex McNeil is my guest. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life, and Alex is in the process of uh, being ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church USA, and he's also in the process of completing a transition from female to male. A little bit more about that transition, Alex. Uh, what what lies in store for you next? Um, you know, I think that I really appreciate that you've kind of made this caveat that it's not me speaking for all uh, transgender people, and it's really about this personal journey. Mm-hmm. So um, I have a couple of options. And so for me, I think that what I'll be doing is changing my gender marker on my license and birth certificate, um, which is a kind of lengthy process and requires letters from your therapist and and all sorts of documentation, and it can be expensive. Because I was uh, born with breast tissue, I'm going to be having what's a process called top surgery, um, which is a process to kind of give your chest a more male um, look uh, because they really that, – that is one of the key differences between reading red as male and not. Um, so I'll be doing that actually in January. There's a lot of um, surgeons across the country now that are skilled in that process. Um, and it's not cheap, but it does make a big difference um, between kind of feeling right in your body and not. Um, and so I'll be for my 30th birthday, I'm actually running a fundraiser to help raise funds for that because um, it co- ends up costing around eight to $9,000. And I imagine this is not covered by most insurance. No, it- unfortunately, um, it's not. There's there's a move. Uh, there's always been a movement to have it covered because it affects so few people that it really wouldn't rise the cost of medical, um, you know, healthcare. But uh, it would make a huge difference in those people's lives who who would who need that procedure done. And so, um, but currently, it is not covered by most providers. And so, January is that upcoming surgery. Good luck with that. Thank you. Um, your blog is called Presbyquerian. Can you tell me uh, the word queer has obviously, obviously historically been used in a derogatory fashion uh, to, to people who, whatever people who thought they were normal or something, thought were odd. But um, I understand that it is also a designation of uh, pride and identity. What is queer and who is queer? That's a great question. And you're right. It does. It has had a pretty bad history in terms of how it's been used against people. And for that reason, some people don't feel comfortable claiming it at all. Um, but I claim it because it's really come to symbolize kind of an umbrella term um, for people who are gay or lesbian or bisexual. Um, people who – anyone who wants to express the idea that our sexuality is not fixed – um, nor is it kind of binary in terms of just preferring males or females or um, 
just being male or female. So queer is also a way to, to designate kind of a fluidity around gender identity as well. Alex McNeil is my guest. And Alex, uh, in, in your studies uh, about gender and in your own experience, what, what have you learned about gender? Well, is it uh, socially constructed, biological? What's the relationship? If I've learned anything about gender, it's that um, nothing about it is simple, black mm. and white. Um, I think that we as humans want it to be because um, it makes us uncomfortable when it's not. Uh, we always it, want to peg people, don't we? We, we want, to, want to know you're this or you're that. I think that that instinct is like to classify people is a very deeply rooted psychological instinct. And I've actually been doing some trainings for people who want to be allies, transgender people who want to advocate for their for their rights and their and their um, kind of acceptance. And so one of the things I do in the training is to ask people to think about when they can remember first learning about their gender. When did you learn that you were a boy or a girl and how did that message come across? I would say that for 90% of folks, that message came when people were as children kind of told not to do something um, because it it really like crossed gender boundaries. It for came, the, came out of shame in some way then, didn't it? Exactly. Absolutely. Out of shame. Um, and so I think that that kind of that's how I think gender gets quote unquote, socially constructed is often through shame. And so the reluctance, the extreme reluctance on some people to kind of think about anyone else coming out of those boundaries um, is what produces some of those really negative reactions to people who don't look like what some folks might consider a typical female or typical male. You talk about uh, allies you just mentioned. What are important things that allies can do uh, to make for uh, justice and understanding? I think that the number one thing on a personal level that allies can do is when they hear someone, if, if anyone ever comes out to them as transgender, rather than kind of getting into the, well, when did you know? Why, how, why is this true? You know, getting to that later, but really, but really first accepting them. Okay. I accept this about you. So what pronouns would you like me to use? And how can I address you in a public space that respects where you are in terms of coming out um, to really kind of, celebrate a person's journey rather than rather than feel scared for them likely the person who's coming out to you about being transgender has already considered some of the scarier pieces and what they need now is support and love and and kind of congratulations and then i think that you know there's a lot of laws that are that make it really hard for transgender people to change their Changed their name even. Um, a judge in Oklahoma recently um, made it almost impossible for people who are changing their birth first name because they're transgender to do so. Um, one of the things you have to do is submit some paperwork before a judge and they, and they rule on it. And so it, depending on the state that you're living in, the judge can be very negative around why, you know, kind of the reasons for why you're changing your name. You know, many people do it when they get married. And some people do it just because they don't like their birth name. And then other people do it because their birth name doesn't re represent the gender they want to portray. Um, and so in that last case, some judges can be pretty discriminatory. 
um, as is in the case with Oklahoma. So if you hear of that happening in your state, kind of figuring out what group in your area is working to change that and, and writing a letter saying that you support people and all their gender expression. So I understand that you are in a film? Yes, there is a documentary in production right now called Out of Order, and it profiles uh, myself and a minister called Mika Van uh, Vandersall from New York City, um, who was one of the first openly um, lesbian people ordained before the law was changed. So her journey um, is being profiled, and then my journey is being profiled as I come out to my ordination committee. It's really trying to show kind of two people who are standing up for what they believe in. And there's actually a website um, for it called outoforderdoc.com. And I'll be profiling it a little bit on my blog. Previously on this program, Reverend Jane Spar uh, talked about how um, if we're going to change society, we're going to need to change the churches. Do you agree with that? I, I do agree with that. And to change the churches requires each person kind of making the the call within their hearts that this is okay. And so, you know, I think that um, as many people who can see the film, who can meet us, who can meet others like us, um, to kind of see that we're living authentically the lives that Jesus called us to, will hopefully kind of find it in their hearts to do that change. Alex McNeil uh, is, is my guest. He blogs at Presbyquerian, P-R-E-S-B-Y-Q-U-E-E-R-I-A-N, on two journeys. One is a journey to ordination to ministry in the Presbyterian Church USA, and another in the journey of transitioning from uh, female to male. Uh, and thank you for allowing me to ask a, a lot of personal questions and, and for being vulnerable and, and answering them. Uh, what 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 final word would you have for us? I've got about a minute left. I think my my final word would be to respect people where they are. When you meet those special individuals, um, treat them kindly and know that we are all blessed. And that is excellent advice for living life, I think. Treat them kindly and know that we're all blessed. Alex McNeil, uh, on via Skype from Washington, D.C., thank you for being with me. Good, good luck. All the best to you in the ordination process and, and all of the other uh, processes of life. All right. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk to you. And you've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Chuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find information about my congregation at www.fpcelizabethton.org. More information about this radio program, including links to podcasts, information about upcoming shows. Uh, you can also find uh, articles, sermons. Wonderful things at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. You can find this program also on uh, iTunes. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.